You're tuned to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, K201HR 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg, and streaming live on the web at kzyx.org. Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray and with me by Squadcast is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies, and we have a return guest from several years ago from one of our favorite shows that we did uh, early on when we started this program. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yeah, we're very pleased to have back uh, Dr. James Harvey, uh, former director of the Moss Landing Marine Lab, now Professor Emeritus from Moss Landing Marine Labs and the Cal State University System, and he's an expert on uh, all things marine mammal, and uh, we're going to uh, be talking about gray whales, which we've never actually talked about, uh, and which <laughs> kind of surprises me, Jim. After 60 programs and uh, interest in whales along our coast, we've never really talked about it. But uh, here we are. We're going to glad to move ahead. Uh, Jim, we usually ask our guests to talk a little bit, uh, and maybe we asked this of you before, but to talk a little bit about uh, uh, how you got into marine biology, and uh, you know. What, what got you interested in the field and what kept you interested in, and the general kinds of things that you, you've done during your career. Okay, yeah, I'll just do a quick a little synopsis of uh, how, how I came to be who I am. Um, it, it actually really starts with my father. My father was a biologist, a, a professor at San Jose State University, a botanist, and he taught um, there for many, many years and studied a large number of different things, including uh, the marshlands of, of San Francisco Bay. But the big thing that kind of affected my life was he got into studying giant sequoias. And he studied giant sequoias for a good part of his life. And as a kid growing up, um, we used to go up the, to the Sierra and um, be in the giant, red, uh, giant redwoods, the, the sequoias, every summer for a large part of my life. And I, so I got used to science, and he was st studying the effects of fire on, on giant sequoias. So my upbringing was a lot of in the, in the wilds, um, working with my dad, helping him with some of his science. Um, and as I grew up, he, uh, I realized that he had a lot of different interests. He was a, he had weather, weathermen in the service, so he knew about the weather. He had geology background, ornithology background, and then his, then his botany interests were his primary ones. And um, at some point, as I got into college and started thinking about becoming a scientist, um, I realized that every time I went out in the field with my father, uh, he seemed like to kn he knew everything. Um, you know, wherever we were, every plant, every geological feature, every bird that flew by, he'd know. And, and so at one point, while I was surfing in Santa Cruz, I finally realized that the best way to not compete with my father was to, be, to go into the ocean. And so um, sitting on a, on a surfboard in, in Santa Cruz, I finally realized that the, probably my, my calling was uh, to do marine science. So that led me to um, go to uh, do, finish my undergraduate degree, get a master's degree in marine science, um, and then on a PhD program at Oregon State. Um, and studied harbor seals and when I was doing my PhD work. Then I, then I went up and did a postdoc and with NOAA in Seattle for two years. And during that time, spent a lot of time in Alaska doing a lot of different work, um, but also working on gray whales in, in Baja, California, um, previous to that. So my interest in science started really with my father and then 
got into the ocean only because I didn't want to compete with him <laughs> and, um, and just felt like he just had so much knowledge about that that it'd be fun to have in the family a, a little bit more diversity on, on what we were studying. So that's led me to, uh, yeah, end up being a, a marine vertebrate ecologist. So I've, I've done work on sea turtles, uh, seabirds, and marine mammals, and uh, lots of different times of marine mammals all over the world. So it's been a, it's been a great career. I must. I imagine you must have had great uh, Thanksgiving dinners between you and your father, and everything you knew about the ocean, ocean and the land. Yes, no, it was fun. It was. Uh, I, I attribute a lot of my characteristics on how I behave, what I, I, how I think, and stuff, and my philosophy about life is that comes from my father. My mother was a very um, uh, caring person, so. Part of my personality about interacting with people comes from her, but how I view science and, and the rest of the world certainly comes from my father's influence. And then how did you come to become director of the Moss Landing Lab? So I, yeah, I got, uh, I went th through Moss Landing Marine Labs as my master's degree. So I studied blue sharks um, for my master's degree. And then, um, as I said, went up, did PhD at Oregon State, uh, postdoc with NOAA in Seattle. Um, and while I was doing sort of getting my training, um, I was really focused on uh, going back and getting into a marine lab. I wanted to work at a marine lab that was similar to Moss Landing Marine Labs. It's a, it's a great place, still is, and I wanted to have that same experience and um, take my, my interests and capabilities to something, a place like that. And it just turns out that Moss Landing Marine Labs had an opening just as I was finishing up my postdoc. So I... I um, applied to be the, on the faculty, was hired and spent uh, 22 years or so as a faculty member at Moss Landing Marine Labs, do, again doing marine vertebrate work, and I ended up being the major advisor for 80, 88 graduate students who got their degrees <laughs> under me, um, and um, which was a, just a fantastic experience. Um, I think I learned more from my students than they learned from me, um, <laughs> that just so many different um, different projects and I, I tried to get out into the field with each one of them to sort of understand what they were doing. And then after 22, 23 years, they, um, the director position at Moss Landing became available and the dean of the College of Science asked me to take it over temporarily while they went for a search, did a search for a new director. And so I said, yes, I'd be willing to do that. Um, I did it for about a year. Our search failed. We didn't get a, a, um, get a good complement of people that we wanted to, to an interview, so they, the search didn't go forward. And then they waited a little bit longer, asked me to stay on for another year um, as interim director, and I did while they started a second search. And while we were in our second search, the faculty came to me and asked me if I would be willing to put my, my name into the hat. And so I said, sure. So um, I get chosen. <laughs> I don't know why, but they took me. And so I ended up being director for 10 years, just retired in September. Wow. Amazing that, career. Uh, that, well, Moss Landing is a great laboratory. Uh, I know I, I hired a couple of people out of there that had done their master's degree and uh, God, they were really solid. They had a great background. So I, I think you folks did a great job with, uh, particularly with your master's program. Well, thanks. Yeah, it is. It's a great program. Um, it kind of combines 
teaching and with uh, field experience. So all of our students, uh, I think, come out with a really great broad background in science in general, but also they have capabilities of going out on the water, driving boats, scuba diving, whatever. They have a lot of skills that a, a lot of, I, there's a lot of programs that really force their students or really want their students to concentrate on their, their specific field and, and just, um, be a little bit more narrow in what they're doing. And Moss Landing tries the opposite. It tries to create um, or provide students with the capabilities and skills that will be a, provide a really broad background so that they can do lots of different things in lots of different places. And I think that's why our students have come out of that program and become very successful is because the program really breeds people who think well but also can, are able to do things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, uh, anybody's listening has uh, an idea about going into graduate work in marine science, I would highly, highly recommend your, uh, your laboratory. Yep, and, it, and after, so the 89 earthquake, uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake that destroyed a lot of things in San Francisco actually destroyed our entire lab also in the 89 earthquake. So that earthquake mm. uh, pretty much took out the entire uh, Moss Landing Marine Laboratory's facilities. Um, and then, so it got rebuilt in a new, different place, and the new building is just fantastic. It's it's one of the. Not only is it a great program, but it's in a great location, right in the middle of Monterey Bay. So um, we have access to Elkhorn Slough, um, the Deep Submarine Canyon. Um, it's it's just a fabulous location on top of just being having some great faculty and staff. Yeah, that is a almost unique location for marine. Are you near Ambari? Yeah, so Ambari's just down the street. Yeah, we uh, <laughs> we are right uh, close, very close to Ambari, uh, which of course is a is a, another great access um, access to to some fabulous work that's being done there. Yeah, fabulous stuff. We had Dr. Barry from Ambari on the show uh, yeah. about well, a year Jim, ago. Yeah, Jim Jim is uh, one of my close friends. He and I went to grad school. We roomed together, going to Moss Landing Marine Labs together. <laughs> really? So so I, I know Jim very well. <laughs> We're going to try to get him in the next month or two again for a return visit. Yeah, yeah I think Good. we could actually just dedicate the entire show and just have nothing but Embari projects. Yeah. <laughs> and no, and it would could. take years yep. to run through all of the stuff they're doing. It's amazing. Yeah, for well, your listeners, who, who if you want to see some unbelievable uh, um, deep water um, video, that's the place to go to Embari's website. It's uh, phenomenal. Uh, I was just actually watching it the other day, watching some of this, the shots of some of the unusual deep sea um, animals. It's, it's an incredible archive of, of um, video. Yeah, it really is. And some amazing animals. Yeah, yeah. Well, well let's gonna... move into uh, the, your area of specialty. And, and I think there's so many of them that we had uh, some difficult choices what to spend an hour talking about. But the the subject that we haven't really addressed on the Ecology Hour in in the several years we've been doing it, uh, it seems strange, but we've never done a show on gray whales. So we thought maybe we'd ask you a little bit about those tonight. Okay, that sounds great. I think a lot of our listeners are probably generally familiar with you know their their life history, but it's probably worth r- running through it. Just you know why they're so interesting and why. Uh, especially for us here on the on the Mendocino coast, uh, do you want to just kind of give a little the gray whale story? I guess. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go way back. Uh, um, 
in, in the 1800s, there, we used to have gray whales um, occupying both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Um, that is no longer the case. Whaling pretty much did in the, um, the whales in the Atlantic um, and also uh, really knocked down the numbers of animal, uh, animals in the Pacific also. But as of right now, the majority, of the, not the entire population of gray whales is now in the Pacific. There's a small subset of a population that's on the western um, Pacific, but most of the gray whales are, are occupying the eastern Pacific and make this incredible migration from their feeding grounds that they usually occupy during the summer and fall, which is typically in the Bering um, and Chukchi and Beaufort Seas. Um, and then they're feeding typically on very um, benthic organisms, small little um, crustaceans that live in the, in the mud, um, usually in about 200 meters of water uh, or less. And so they, they're foraging up in the Alaska region during the summer, fall. And then at the, as the winter comes and ice starts occupying a large part of the northern point, at least in the old days they used to, um, the whales are sort of forced, um, and, and because the water temperature is changing, they're forced southward. So the animals go through a migration where they, they migrate along the coastline, right along your coast and our, our coast down here. Uh, gray whales are unique um, in large the war, large whale setting in that the, they spend most of their life in relatively shallow water. Um, rarely do they get into water deeper than 200 meters. Most of the time they're in shallow water even during their feeding period and through the whole migration. So they migrate all along the coastline, typically within typically four to five miles of the coast, the animals are moving southward during the winter. Um, so for instance, I'll use Monterey Bay as the, the, the starting timing point, but it, we start seeing southbound gray whales typically in December. Um, and that's about when you'd probably be seeing them up along your, the northern part of the coast of California, heading south. And then there's a migration southward that's about, it takes about a month, month and a half. Um, about February, mid-February is when we start seeing the northbound whales. So after the whales have migrated south, they, they, they meet basically uh, along the coastline of Baja, but in primarily in three lagoons um, that are on the western coast of Baja. Those lagoons are where the gray whales are going into to basically get out of the main part of the Pacific and probably uh, get away a little bit from some of the predators like killer whales. So getting into shallow lagoons provides them some protection. Uh, the water temperature is a little warmer, so it's probably a little easier to have a calf and have the calf start growing and not have to worry about the calf um, being susceptible to colder water. So those lagoons sort of end up being a breeding um, area. Uh, both the males and the females will move into those lagoons during the winter and go through the breeding pre process and, and calving process. And then the an animals will turn around and start heading north. And as I said, about mid-February, the animals are now along our California coastline are heading northward. Um, and they'll continue to migrate north all the way back up to the, the Alaska region. Um, arriving there sometime in summer, um, and then they go through their summer-fall feeding, and the cycle repeats. Um, so it's an amazing migration, long distance. Um, people have always asked, 
Why would the animals go through that migration when it's so costly? You would seemingly think it'd be very costly to travel that distance. And the answer ends up being, well, we think the answer ends up being that, that it's obviously advantageous for the whales to do it. Otherwise, evolutionarily, they wouldn't be doing it. Um, mm -hmm. But they, uh, they probably are using the migration to get them from a good place to breed, which is in southern, uh, in the Baja um, area, to a good place to eat, which is in the Bering Sea. Um, um, and then that migration um, just allows them to get to those two locations. Um, and unfortunately for them, the, the distance, the, there's a fair distance between the two locations, so they have to travel a ways. And the more we've got to learn about cetaceans, whales, dolphins, porpoises, we've come to realize that the animals are very well adapted for swimming. So the, the energetic cost of traveling that far is really not as great as you would think it would be. Um, the whales are really efficient at swimming and capable so that um, there's an advantage, uh, apparently, to, to being feeding in a very productive place like the Bering Sea, um, Chuck Street and Beaufort Seas, and there's a benefit to, to uh, energy conservation being in warmer water off Baja. So that's the migration um, period. And so that's why you, you see gray whales for a good part of the year um, from about December through May or June, um, you, you'll see gray whales off of our coastline. Some, sometime in the early winter heading south and later winter, early, early spring heading north. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bird guy, so this is all really familiar. The, this, the, the migration pattern and the reasoning behind it seems very much like uh, the way so many different species of birds follow the same exact pattern. They have a summer feeding and breeding area and then a wintering area that they go to and in some cases cover tremendous distances. The, exactly. Of course, the Arctic Tern being the the, the foremost example of a 20,000-mile migration pattern. Yep. How no, far exactly. is it that the grays go? That's a, it's a few thousand? Yeah, I forget what... I, I can't, can't remember off like the top of my head what the... 12,000, 12, I read. Yeah, round, somewhere around that. Round, round trip, yeah. Yep. Yeah, 6,000 each way, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's, and and uh, they they feed along the way, right? They're not doing the migration in a run. Some do, yes, some do. So uh, the, the main southward migration from Alaska down to Baja is pretty much done without stopping. Uh, there's huh. very few places where they stop to feed forage on their way, on their way south. Um, there is a lot of evidence now that's accumulating over time, that there's quite a bit of foraging that's occurring on the northward migration. And that's probably because they've expended a lot of their energy getting down to the, the lagoons. And now on the northward migration, they're, they need to, to uh, kind of tank up or get some more energy in, in, in them to continue with the migration. So um, there's actually quite a few good places that the animals stop to forage. One of them's off Humboldt um, area. But they'll also uh, forage off of, uh, up off Washington. There's a number of places off Washington and Oregon coastline where the animals forage. There's some spots in central California where we occasionally will see gray whales stopping to forage. Um, but they, it's, it's very infrequent um, or probably more based on how well the, the whales are and what kind of shape the whales are before the migration starts. If they're in good shape, and this is what we... We'll get to this topic soon about how the climate change is affecting the migration and the the 
capabilities of gray whales because now um, there's less ice uh, cover in the north up off Alaska and that's allowing the whales to stay in the foraging areas for a longer period of time. Um, at the same time, it's also, climate change is also affecting the populations of the, of the prey that they feed on. So there's sort of this balancing act that's happening right now with gray whales being allowing their foraging area to be accessible for a longer period of time, but at the same time, it seems like the populations of the prey that they feed on are, are declining. Um, so this, the whales are now um, on their migration are, are sometimes leaving the, the northern area a little later um, than they have in the past. And that may be, um, as they get stressed a little bit, it may also make the, some of the whales as they head north um, try to find places to feed so that they can um, get some energy before they continue northward. I've gotten the impression that the uh, Bering, Chukchi, and parts of the Beaufort Sea are I'm not sure, so sure about the Beaufort Sea, but at least in the eastern part of the Beaufort, uh, but in the western part and those other seas, the, it's pretty productive. I mean, there's, they're, they're really put a, put a lot of energy. There's a lot of energy that goes into the to the food web there, and, and uh, but I don't know how that compares to benthic systems and uh, along the coast in California and Washington. I know it's quite variable. Yeah, it's, and it's variable. It's variable in the, the in the productivity, but it's also variable in the types of species that are available to them. In the Bering Sea, Chukchi and Beaufort Sea, the primary prey that they have been um, known to take are ampelisid amphipods, a little amphipod that that grows and builds a a, a um, tube in the in the mud muddy sediments, um, and that's what they do. So the gray whales, when they're foraging, will dive to the bottom, which again is in relatively shallow water, 100 to 200 meters, turn sideways on, on, their, si on their side, suck up um, the sediment, and then use their tongue to manipulate the water in the food so that they force the water out the sides of their mouth, which is filled with baleen. So the baleen is, is, grows from the, the top jaw downwards, and it creates a base, basically a sieve so that the whales are able to sieve out the water and leave the, the their food items um, in, on the baleen, and then they sh they swipe the the food back into their throat using their tongue. So <laughs> most baleen whales have these really large tongues because they're they're using them very effectively to basically as suctions suction mechanism to to get their prey. And so the whales will go down on a dive and um, basically kind of. Um, move sideways, so they'll take a suction of the sediment, then turn their body just a little bit, take another another bite, another bite, another bite, so that you might see six or eight um, <clears throat> lateral um, bites out of the bottom of the ocean, and then they'll revert them, invert themselves back to, um, to their top is coming up to the surface, and as they come back up to the surface to breathe, they're pumping the water out and, and um, engulfing their prey. And they'll they'll do that dive after dive after dive during the uh, the summertime as they're, as they're foraging. So that's that's their most their most abundant prey and the one that they really go on go for during their time up in Alaska. If they're feeding on prey on the on the migration route, like say off Humboldt or Bay or um, there's a, a large number of, of whales that are using um, places off um, Washington. Oftentimes they're feeding on different things, and in there it might be things like mycids. Mycids are another 
kind of shrimp-like organism, a little smaller than the ampelisca amphipods, but they'll they'll group in in large swarms, and the and the whales will feed on them. Um, they'll also feed on, a, on different types of shrimp um, that are in in some of these areas, also along the coastlines of Oregon, Washington, and California. So um, it's a different different array of prey that they're eating on the migration route as opposed to what they're eating up in Alaska. And those yeah, we have a lot of mycids here, I know, and yeah, they the gray whales get a lot of them. Yep. So they're maybe picking up some of those mycids off, uh, and I know they, they, they form clouds. If you dive here, you can see them in clouds above the bottom. So do they feed on them in the midwater or... A bit, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. exactly. Um, so they are, they are they're pretty flexible in, in what they feed on. And this is, this is sort of the story with climate change is that we really believe that if the Ampeliscid amphipod populations really decrease up in Alaska, um, that the gray whales are going to have to switch their prey um, and start feeding on other things. And it's very likely they may switch to fish. Um, fish populations is some of the modeling that's been done on climate change is, seems to indicate that the amphipod populations are going to continue to go down, but the fish, fish populations are going to go up. Some some species of fish. Interesting. And, and, and the gray whales may um, may be able to hopefully be able to switch their uh, primary prey selection from amphipods to fish. And if they do that, then they'll be okay. If they can't aren't able to do that effectively then the populations may suffer from, from some of the climate changes uh, actions. So on this, before we get away from migration, I had a question I wanted to ask about, uh, there's a local phenomenon that some of us have, have observed that uh, in some years, maybe not every year, but we see uh, individual gray whales staying here on the Mendocino coast in certain locations all summer long. So there's a single whale and it and they seem to hang out in uh, embayments. So uh, Mendocino Bay and down at Elk, I know there was one a couple of years ago. Do you know what's going on with that? Yeah, that that we believe is is uh, some of the adaptations the whales have have taken to to um, deal with the fact that the populations or prey availability to them and to the north is is compromised. And so some some individuals who have found their these prey resources along the migration route are now using them entirely during their the the feeding season so they're not actually there's some portion of the population that's not making the entire migration all the way up to Alaska they're actually stopping and feeding off Washington and and northern California and spots in Oregon also and they we've there are a number of studies that have been done that, that show that that's the case that they can actually recognize the individuals based upon their scarring and markings and so they've been able to um, determine that yes the same individuals are coming back each year to the same locations along the migration route and instead of migrate continuing to migrate will stay there the entire summer and forage on mycids and shrimp and a variety of other things that are in those locations um, and it's likely um, if those um, populations of invertebrates continue to stay plentiful that they'll you'll still see the, those same individuals will probably continue to do that year after year after year um, and you might see new individuals a lot of a lot of the ones individuals initially that were doing that were young young animals that were probably just didn't have enough energy to make the full migration and some of them were also um, females that had just had their calf and 
um, were also probably energetically stressed um, on through the migration. So they stopped off and they would kind of fill up and then continue their migration. But the young ones seemed to say, well, to themselves, why not stay here <laughs> stay, <laughs> instead of having to move all the way up to Alaska? Um, if the food's uh, good enough here, I'm just going to stay here and eat. So yeah, those individuals you're seeing there, some of them are going to continue to move on, but there are specific individuals that are staying the entire summer and foraging in that location and bypassing the full migration. I know Shane Anderson uh, down at UC Santa Barbara when he was the station naturalist uh, told me about a bunch of small gray whales or dwarfs that were hanging out in the kelp beds most of the <laughs> most of the time and wouldn't be migrating. Right. Yep, that's exactly it. Yeah, the small ones that just are, don't have enough energy to really make the full migration are the ones that are a large ones, are largely the ones that are stopping and and spending the summer in in places south of uh, Alaska. Yeah, that's interesting because it, I heard some fishermen saying they thought they were, these were young individual, maybe young males, because they were seeing so many of them that were just individuals. Uh, but then I was out fishing in the summer and a full-sized adult came up right behind the kayak. I mean, there was no mistaking that. <laughs> it yeah. was not a small one. <laughs> and uh, so it's interesting. So they're coming back and making this a year-after-year year thing. And then they still do make the winter journey down south. Yes. Yeah. And then Yes. Yeah. So they yeah, just cut we, short uh, the northern journey. Correct. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know that... Um, there's very much information about individuals staying the entire year um, in one location, but uh, I wouldn't doubt that that's going to start happening, um, especially if, if if you're a young individual and you're not mating, um, you're not you know fully grown enough to um, be reproducing, why not stay in a right. place that's, that still has food and is still uh, conducive to um, at least weather, water temperatures for you? Um, it doesn't make sense to, to migrate if you, if you don't need to. Um, mm -hmm. So I, sus I suspect there's going to be fine, we'll find places where there, yeah, whales are, uh, gray whales are occupying the same spot along the migration route year round. So are they uh, uh, just mating individuals, sexually uh, mature individuals that go down to Baja, or, or does the whole population go down? Uh, most of the entire population goes down. So even juveniles will be down in the lagoons. Um, uh, they, they oftentimes, well, so it, the, the, pro, the progression for the migration is kind of interesting so that the animals that leave the Northern feeding areas first are typically the females that are pregnant. So they're the first ones to leave because it's going to take them a little longer to get down to the lagoon. And also they want to get there to, in time to have their calf in the lagoon. So they're usually the, the females with calves or, or, or pregnant females are the first ones to leave going southward. And then you usually have the, the juveniles and male, adult males coming after that. And then on the reverse migration, it's typically the, the females who have just been impregnated but don't have a calf yet. They're the first ones to leave going northward. Then you get the juveniles again going up north. And then the, and finally um, you'll get the, well, and male, adult males in the middle of there. And then at the very end are the females with calves that, have, that are now have their calf are moving northward. So the females with, that are having their calves down in the lagoon are the first ones to arrive in the lagoon and the last ones to leave, uh, which makes sense because they're trying to get their, to there to have their calf in the warm, protected waters of the lagoons of Baja 
and then they've got to um, grow that calf large enough and have enough um, energy in the calf to be able to start the migration because the calf obviously has got to swim on its own. Um, and so uh, staying in the lagoon longer en enough to get, allow the calf to grow and get uh, the energy needed for the migration is, is the key thing for those females. So they're the last ones. In, you know, if you see a gray, a gray whale going through your area in May or June, it's most likely a female with calf. Interesting, yeah. If you just joined us, listeners, uh, we're talking about gray whales this evening with Dr. James Harvey, recently retired director of the Moss Landing Marine Laboratory, and uh, getting the whole story on the, both the prehistory and uh, modern conditions for California gray whales. Really interesting stuff. Uh, what's the general life history in terms of when they sexually mature, how long they live, uh, when's the reproductive uh, period for the females and so forth? Okay. Yeah, so the, the I'll start sort of from the beginning of life. So the as I said, most of the calves are born um, in the southern portion of their range, typically in the lagoons, but sometimes offshore. They actually, sometimes the female will have the birth the, the calf on their way south towards the lagoons. Um, in fact, there's probably a good, quarter, qu at least a quarter of the gray whales that are born uh, are born along the migration route, not in the lagoons themselves. Um, so the female gets the calf into the lagoon. That calf is born at about 15 feet length, um, which whenever I give these talks, I always look at the the mothers in the in the room and say, can you imagine giving birth to a 15 foot long um, uh, calf? But um, that that calf then grows pretty rapidly. The um, mom's feeding the calf with uh, milk that she produces, and um, most uh, most mammals have lips, right? And one of the reasons mammals have lips is to be able to suckle to suck milk from their the mother. Um, and cetaceans typically don't have lips. They've got very hard um, areas around their mouth. So they're not able to suckle, in other words, suck milk out, pull muck, ma, ma, milk out of their mother like most mammals do. So the female actually has muscles around the mammary gland that allows them to push the milk out to the calf. So the calf just comes up to the, the female's uh, nipples and uh, the female then pushes the milk out of her mammary glands into the water and the uh, if the calf is doing the right thing sh they've got th their mouth right up next to the the female's nipples and the milk mostly goes into the mouth and in lagoons in Baja California when I was working down there it wasn't unusual to see a female nursing their their calf and see some milk trickling out um, off to the side because the female the calf wasn't quite um, nudged up right up next to the female to be able to get make make sure all the milk was getting into them. So the calf is getting large amounts of milk, high in, in protein and very high in fat, um, so that the animal grows very rapidly. Of course, the idea here is to create a fat layer, a, a blubber layer, as fast as you possibly can because the calf is in the, like all cetaceans are in the water all year round, all the time. So um, to stay warm, you've got to create a, a blanket of, of insulation with which blubber serves. Um, and that, that blubber um, protects the, the calf from um, getting too cool, too cold. Um, and so the, the female's milk is really um, important for them to be able to get into as much um, 
fat and, and energy into the calf as they possibly can, as quickly as they can, so that the calf can grow rapidly, but also get that, that blubber layer um, developed really quickly. So the calf then gets, grows, grows up, um, is uh, about, well, okay, then that's, they're staying in the lagoon for a four or five month period of time, calf growing, feeding, being fed, warm water protected so that you're not necessarily being subjected to potential predators like killer whales. And then eventually you start the migration northward. Um, the calf is probably um, weaned, in, in, in other words, separated from the female about uh, northern California to British Columbia is sort of the estimate of where most of the calves huh. separate from their female, the female. Um, so it's about a six to eight month period of time that the female, the calf is with the, with the mother. Um, and then they'll separate and the calf is on its own um, from then on. Um, huh. And that female is, starts that process of having calves um, anywhere around eight to 10 years of age. Um, so they, they're, they're um, juveniles and, and growing for uh, periods before that. It might be actually be a little younger that they could start probably reproducing at six, six to eight, somewhere around there. Um, and the males uh, are maturing a little bit later than that. So they're maturing at seven to 10 years of age. Um, and, and then, then what's they, the lifespan? Um, uh, probably the it's hard be, hard to come up with a really good estimate because we don't <laughs> it's really difficult to age um cetaceans uh, well um uh-huh. baleen whales for instance gray whales um tooth whales um you can section their teeth just like you can a tree and you can see the rings of of their age on the tooth but baleen whales don't have teeth so we don't have that record of of their age um in a in a hard matter that's available to us. Uh, the bones don't have um, growth rings on it. So there's, we've had a number of different studies trying to figure out different ways of aging uh, baleen whales. And our best estimate would guess, guess that gray whales are probably getting to about 50 to 60 years of age. But we don't really know what the well, maximum don't know, lifespan yes, is. We don't yeah. know precisely, yeah, because there's not a really good way of aging um, baleen whales. There's a couple of Structures in in baleen whales like gray whales, um, there's an earplug that um, produces. Um, it's like it's a, like a waxy earplug that builds up over time, and it has layers in it that can be used. Um, <clears throat> but it doesn't it doesn't grow forever, and it um, and it's we're still trying to interpret what the rings actually really mean. Yeah. Um, and then there's been some other uh, interesting sidelines, anecdotal kind of information about age, and one of them is. From, um, from harpoons that have been left in gray whales from the old days of har- harvesting. And we know when those, gray- those harpoons were kind of used. And there have been some gray whales that have found, we found after being um, dyed and necropsy, have, they've found some of these harpoons in them. So we know that those animals were at least this you know, certain age based on what the, when the harpoons were used. Um, but yeah, we're still trying to figure out a better way to, to age baleen whales. Yeah, that's a recurring theme. The uh, same thing is true with some of the, several other long-lived species. We're still grappling with how long do they actually live and how do we figure that out. Yep. Wandering albatrosses, for example. I yes. think I asked somebody once how what their lifespan was, and they said, we don't really know. Yeah. Yep. But they have the same kind of life history, this uh, long 
period before sexual maturity and then a very slow reproductive rate. So right. you can kind of extrapolate that they're long-lived species. Yes. And sometimes you can look at the uh, residual radionuclides from the from the 50s and 60s where, the, where fallout was uh, more significant than it is now and, and you know, take a section of the bone and uh, put it on a, a piece of film for a few weeks or a month and, and develop it and see where the radiation is. Right. Get an yep. idea. Then. So, yep. so yeah, I, I think for gray whales, the, the best estimates are about 40 to 50 years is sort of their maximum year, maximum mm -hmm. age. Are they the only benthic feeding whales? Pretty much, uh, yes. Um, most of the other large baleen whales are, are eat um, sort of pelagic prey. Um, blue whales are renowned for, for mostly feeding on krill, euphausids. Uh, humpback whales feed on krill and fishes and squid. Um, so do all a lot of the other baleen whales. The the right whales are uh, are feed on a lot smaller things. They feed on mostly copepods, um, really small plankton. Um, but yeah, all up in the water col column, pretty much. Gray whales, pretty much the only baleen whale that that's known to be a primary a, a bottom feeder. Can't you pick up the the the, uh, the divots they take out of the mud? You pick those up with sonar. Uh, yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the bottom uh, profiling uh, capabilities using acoustics. Yes, you can you can actually see the divots created by gray whales. And for a long time, people <clears throat> saw those things but didn't know what they were. And John Oliver and his group from Moss Landing Relabs were some of the first people to describe that. He was diving on the clam and benthic environments up in the Bering Sea and came across these things, uh, these divots and finally put it together that these were gray whales divots. And then they, they did a, a bunch of surveys to kind of re record how many divots were done. And because the individual gray whale will oftentimes, as I said, kind of sit in one spot and just spiral, um, turn its body to forage, you can kind of get an estimate of how many bites out of the ocean on each dive a gray whale, individual gray whale met, made. And then you can start making estimates as they started doing about how much of the benthic environment was being, turning over based upon gray whale foraging. So they could start realizing that, that gray whales were having a pretty big impact to the benthic environment because obviously they're, they're feeding on these um, benthic organisms and in the process of doing that are disturbing the sediments, which actually creates a whole different dynamic for how the, the benthic environment um, responds to that disturbance. Um, so gray whales end up being a, a pretty big, um, have a pretty big impact on what the benthic environment is in a certain way. And since they've been there for millions of years doing the same thing, the benthic environment has now evolved to, to respond to gray whale foraging. Right. They're basically, yeah, they're rototilling it. Yeah. it exactly. Yeah. Yep. Interesting stuff. So what's the population now, getting back to the history of these things, uh, do we know? Do we have estimates for the pre-whaling numbers, and then uh, what was the low point, and then how are they doing now? Yeah, that's a good question. That's and that's a difficult question to answer. So, we don't have really good estimates from human populations um, counting animals to know what the pre-whaling numbers actually were. There's no really good data at all that available available to us to kind of guesstimate. So most of the estimates for pre-whaling numbers and even pre-human numbers come from genetics. So we're using molecular techniques to try to understand. <clears throat> so 
with the present population, you, you go in, you take samples from that population, and you look at genetic diversity, and based upon what you think about mutation rates and all that sort of thing, you can back calculate what you think the population would have been before, um, um, well, back different time frames. Yeah. Um, so if you do that, you get sometimes get estimates that there might have been in um, the populations could have been in the hundreds of thousands of gray whales. Um, our current population is around 24,000, 25,000 individuals. Um, and it, the numbers oscillate back and forth depending on when the, when the most survey, the most recent survey is and how good the survey ended up being. But that's, that's about sort of about the guesstimate of where we are with the numbers in the Eastern Pacific. And it's about 24, 25,000 individuals. Might be as high as 28, uh, maybe down as low as 22, but it's in that range of individuals. And so the question ends up being, are we really at a low point because it used to be in the hundreds of thousands? Or there are other people who have estimated that the population at present is pretty close to what it's always been. Um, so we're, there's a controversy still mm -hmm. going on in science to, to understand really what the actual true population numbers were in the old days. We get pretty good estimates now because obviously we've got the observers and the science to be able to do that. But as I said, no one was counting gray whales back in those old days um, pre-whaling. So we just don't have a number other than based on like a genetics. And they didn't keep track of how many were harvested when they were whaling them? They did. They did keep track of that um, to some extent. Some of the records are pretty poor. Um, yeah. So we, yeah, they've they've used some of those numbers to kind of. That's where you get estimates that there might have been like thirty, forty thousand individuals in the old days. Um, but we're still trying to figure out, um, um, like I said, what where the, where we stand as far as the numbers. Yeah, we had uh, Alan Springer on once. He was a, a colleague and friend, and he was. Uh, it did some estimates, I think him and Jim Estes perhaps together did some estimates of the uh, uh, the take of the uh, the Japanese and the Russians in the North Pacific of all kinds of whales. And I would assume that in, include the gray whales. And... Yes. Yeah, there is some good estimates from those. Um, the, the Russians, <laughs> um, I was at a marine mammal meeting years ago. When one of the Russian scientists, this was after after the USSR had disbanded, um, and one of the Russian scientists finally admitted that a large amount of the data that they had seen was in fact um, wrong, that the Russians had been misrepresenting the number of, of whales that actually were taken by Rus the Russian fleet. Um, and uh, he was only able to be able to say, make those statements after... Basically, the USSR had disbanded, so, so that the the uh, repercussions to him were going to be a lot less than. Um, and he, he may be revising his estimates uh, currently. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going back to the old numbers now. Yes, <laughs> unfortunately, yes. But anyway, yeah, um, it's it's hard to kind of extrapolate to some extent from the the uh, whaling records exactly um, how many animals we. Um, had at those times, but it, it gives us a some estimate. And again, the whaling estimates throw in numbers that are between numbers we have now to up to maybe 40 to 50,000. Um, the genetics would say even much higher than the hundreds, the hundred to 200,000. Um, and so we haven't really, I don't think there's been consensus yet <clears throat> from the scientific community about really what the, um, the 
prehistoric numbers were like, what the pre-whaling numbers were like. Yeah, and we only now have one subpopulation left, right? I mean, there, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that there used to be a population in the Atlantic Ocean and there used to be a Western Pacific population as well, and, and those are now completely gone. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because that's some interesting things that have happened most recently. So when I did my PhD at Oregon State, I was working with Bruce Mate, who's, um, who pretty much um, made his, his mark on science by developing um, new tags for large whales. Um, and he started that with me. I helped him initially when he started doing that. We started testing different wa- tag types in Baja, California, because we had such easy access to a large whale um, in those lagoons. Um, so Bruce, over his, his history of his, um, his work, developed a, a better and, and better, better tag that he could put in, into large whales. So he, he ended up tagging a number of gray whales um, off the uh, Russian peninsula, Kamchatka Peninsula, and which are considered to be the eastern population. And for many, many years, we knew there were gray whales, uh, there's only, at this point, I think 200 to 300 whales that live on the Western Pacific that migrate basically from off the coast of Russia down to maybe as far as Japan. So they're feeding to the feeding, feeding off of Russia uh, waters and then heading south and doing the breeding, like the Baja side, um, breeding down off of um, north of Japan. Um, so he put these tags on the Russian, a couple Russian gray whales, and the, a few of them migrated across the Pacific and down the coastline, and one hmm. made it all the way down to the lagoons in Baja, California, hmm. and then turned around and went all the way back to Russia at the end of their, at the end of the breeding season. So <clears throat> now we know that there's, this is not an unusual thing, that this is actually pretty common to have whales from the Russia feeding area actually coming to Baja. Now we don't know if they're mating with the Baja, the eastern Pacific gray whales, or whether they're, you know, they're kind of keeping separate. But if, you, if you're a gray whale swimming all that distance, I don't think you're going to stop from mating. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, I, so I think the new thinking is that there actually might be just one major population um, of gray whales that are in the Pacific uh-huh. and that we're actually getting quite a bit of interchange between the whales that are feeding off um, Russia interacting with the whales that are feeding off of Alaska. And it makes sense. I mean, they, they kind of occupy the whole North Pacific. So if you think about it, you've got a North Pacific foraging area, which includes Rus- uh, Russian waters and Alaskan waters, and then some small portion of those individuals in the nearer Russia go down the western side of the Pacific and a large portion of the whales that are foraging off Alaska are coming down the eastern side of the Pacific along um, Canada and the United States down to Mexico. Um, but there's interchange. There, there, mm-hmm. there are animals that are moving between those two populations. And so we may not have as distinctive two mm-hmm. groups as, as we thought in the past. Then, to, to make things even more confusing, or to <clears throat> add to the story, we've now had uh, records of at least a couple, and maybe it, I, then I know of two, maybe there might be three, two individuals that have now migrated across the Pacific, the Arctic Ocean, and gone into the Atlantic. Huh. So we've, 
We've had at least two whales that are now they've made it to the Atlantic Ocean that came from the Pacific um, Ocean. And that's because, again, uh, most likely because of climate change change yeah. changes and the fact that we don't have the ice cover that we had in the past. Right. Um, and so now there's an avenue for whales to get across um, the Arctic Ocean between the Pacific and the Atlantic. Well, there's a rare cause for optimism then. <laughs> Maybe they can repopulate the <clears throat> So exactly. The so there is, there is some possibility that that might happen if enough whales venture over to the Atlantic and yeah. can start up um, that population, it's very possible we might have um, gray whales, again, endemic in the, in the Atlantic. Is there enough genetic data to see if there's any subpopulations? Uh, uh, it doesn't take much interchange to really mix the genetic uh, information. Uh, yeah, so they're working on that right now. Um, there is some work that's been done in the past to show that there, there's a slight difference between the Western Atlant Western Pacific and the Eastern Pacific. They, there, there's some genetic differences there, but it's, um, as we just talked about, they're, they're not as great as you'd expect, or at least we thought in the past, because we now know that there's, there is interchange between the two populations. So there is some genetic in information that would tell that they're they're different, but they're not as different than the, as what we thought in the past. Well, we were getting uh, short on time now. We've only got a few minutes left in the hour. And before we end, I, I wanted to ask you about the uh, the unusual mortality event that hit gray whales on the Pacific coast uh, in the last couple of years. Do you have any thoughts to share about that? Yeah, so there's been, um, yeah, so the marine mammal community has a group that is... Um, primary focused on these unusual mortality events. We all, I'll call them UMEs, unusual mortality events. And these UMEs are basically um, something out of the ordinary, as the word unusual would, would imply. <laughs> um, and we, uh, we've, we have enough data on most marine mammal populations to kind of understand how many normally would die in a year. Um, and whenever we get a large die-off of, of a specific species, we start becoming concerned about what, what's the cause of the mortality, um, is there anything we can do as humans to, to alleviate it, and, and to, certainly to put some resources into monitor, monitoring it and, and researching it out to find to under, understand the, what the causes are. And there, so on any given year, we might have um, maybe six to eight unusual mortality events that are going on around the United States. And one of them that's occurring right now that's probably on the way out, uh, we hope, is an unusual mortality event associated with gray whales um, on the Eastern Pacific. Um, and this is large numbers of whales that have been recorded dying or dead in Alaska all the way down to Mexico. Um, so it's all uh, throughout their entire migration, <clears throat> their areas, there's, there's good records of whales um, dying, gray whales dying. Um, the whales that, and, and as you might expect, um, trying to understand the causes of mortality for a large whale is difficult. Um, and one of the reasons why is that lots of times the whale will die offshore and may take a, a while, days and days, before it finally washes up to shore. And by the time it gets on shore, it may take a couple days before there's a necropsy and therefore, you might have five to seven days since death before the animal's actually being examined. And in the course of that, the animal, of course, starts decaying. And, um, and so it's hard to get good samples <clears throat> to understand, is it disease or whatever, when you have an animal that's been dead for a while. 
Um, so you, what that, that long story is basically says is that we just don't have a large sample size to be able to determine um, what the cause of mortality is. So all the animals that, we, that have been examined, the things that seem to stand out are, um, are the, some of the major reasons for the dying is a lack of food. So they're, in, they're emaciated. A large number of the animals are emaciated. And we actually now have some good records of aerial surveys showing emaciated animals in the migration. So we're actually, you can take pictures from the air and go, oh, look, that animal's really skinny. Um, so emaciation is one of the big problems. Ship strikes is another one. Animals, animals being hit by boats that, that kill them. Um, there is a few uh, animals that might have had some disease-related issues, but it seems like um, the animals are mostly suffering from a lack of food. And that goes back to when we first started talking about this, that there seems to be some evidence now that the benthic communities up in Alaska are, are now suffering based on warming waters and changes in, in currents and that sort of thing that are happening due to climate change. There's a lot more interest now in trying to understand the gray whale story. Before, the gray whale story was a really uh, successful one. The whales had been harvested and knocked down because of, of, um, because of hunting, um, whaling. And, and after the United States and others, put, put Mexico put protections on gray whales, the populations have come back up dramatically. And so everybody was all excited that gray whales were in, in good shape and um, they, went, they were in an endangered species at one point and now are no longer considered an endangered species because the populations have rebounded. Um, and now all of a sudden we're getting um, these unusual mortality events that are occurring and animals dying because of lack of food and that would pretend to tell us that there's some issues going on in the environment and that this species may not be as um, in good a shape as we thought they were in the past. And what would, before we leave it, uh, what was the what kind of numbers are we talking about? How many uh, dead whales are we talking about? We're talking about hundreds, hundreds mm -hmm. of gray whales um, dying in a year, um, all up and down the coastline. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. I can't remember all the the exact numbers, um, but yeah, we're talking about hundreds of individuals. Well, Tim, I think that uh, kind of fills out our hour here. It does. Yep, and just about exactly, Doctor Harvey. This has been another fantastic conversation yeah great yeah st i still have more questions <laughs> <laughs> me too yeah. well, well i'm glad to have it you get you you both are excellent interviewers and it's really always fun to to have a discussion with you it, uh, i learned things um during the discussion also so i'm i'm glad to do it and if you want me to come back at another time i'd be happy to do it you've been listening to the ecology hour on kzyx with our guest dr james harvey uh, recently retired director of the Moss Landing Marine Laboratory, and our topic was gray whales, and uh, we thought we were going to cover it pretty thoroughly, but I think there's still an awful lot we need to learn, so we'll have to have you back, Dr. Harvey. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Good night.